I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. Now people realize the scale of the transmission infrastructure that's going to be needed. And it's clear that we cannot keep up with the level of expansion that we need just by building new lines. America's dramatic shift towards renewable energy generation in remote areas will require a substantial transmission build-out in the years ahead, potentially doubling or tripling the current grid. In other words, there is no transition without transmission. And while it's crucial that we expedite the construction of large power lines at a much faster clip, there's another technology solution that demands our equal attention. This parallel approach involves the use of something called grid-enhancing technologies, or GETs. GETs offer a modular, cost-effective path to enhancing our existing infrastructure, while also significantly amplifying the efficacy of new transmission investments. To gain deeper insights into how GETs can help us meet the needs of the 21st century electric grid, accelerate the clean energy transition, and lower energy costs, my Hasse colleague Manish and I recently sat down with Julia Selker, Executive Director of the Working for Advanced Transmission Technologies Coalition, better known as the Watt Coalition. Julia, welcome to Climate Positive. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Maybe to start, we're here to talk about grid-enhancing technologies, or GETs. Could you sort of give us the best definition in 2023 of how you describe the technologies themselves and how they help accelerate the clean energy transition and lower energy costs? Yeah, so grid-enhancing technologies are hardware or software that increase the capacity, efficiency, reliability, safety of transmission facilities. Uh, so mostly what we talk about, though, is, is the capacity, because the transmission grid today is being asked to do more than we've ever asked of it before. We're trying to undertake an energy transition and interconnect new resources, and those resources aren't in exactly the same places as the resources that are retiring. So we need more transmission capacity, and we need to use it differently. And that's where these tools really come into play. So there are three technologies that I work with the most. Those are dynamic line ratings. They measure the true capacity of transmission lines based on ambient conditions. So uh, when you're running power through a line, the resistance in that wire is heating the line. But at the same time, the wind is cooling it. And that can have a really significant impact. And today, uh, lines have static ratings or seasonal ratings or even ambient adjusted ratings, which are based on temperature. But with dynamic line ratings, you're really taking everything into account and you're measuring the impacts of these factors on the line. So you know the true capacity of the line and you're, you're taking the guesswork out of it. And the dynamic line ratings, just quickly a follow-up on that, also called DLRs. We're going to have fun with acronyms today. That's a like a physical piece of hardware on the line itself or on the tower. How does it work? Paint a picture for us of a DLR. So dynamic line ratings are sensors that go either on the transmission tower, on the transmission line, or nearby. They either look at the line with LIDAR sensors or measure the line behavior itself with, you know, by clamping onto the line or some other DLR uses the fiber optic cables that are strung alongside transmission towers to measure cooling impacts and heating impacts. Cool. And number two, you mentioned advanced power flow control. That's a mouthful. What is that? Why does it matter? Yeah. So these are devices, advanced power flow controllers 
are placed at the substations and they make use of the fact that the grid is a mesh and there are often multiple circuits that can deliver power to the from one location to the generator to the load. So these technologies alter the flow of power. So if you have one circuit that's being overloaded, it's the path of least resistance is a phrase we all know. Uh, they can change that value and push the power onto a different circuit. And then you're unlocking the capacity from that additional route. Okay, bring it home. Topology optimization, <laughs> the third core get. Yeah. Tell us. This is software only. So system operators or renewable okay. energy companies use it to look at the grid assets, the grid conditions, the demand, the supply. And the technology can identify reconfigurations, which will find the the best way to deliver the lowest cost energy. So sort of like advanced power flow control, the power has one path that it wants to go on, but you don't necessarily need advanced power flow control to move it around. You could switch circuits at the substation itself or undertake other very low cost interventions to alter the flow of power and on net, uh, increase the capacity of the grid. And topology optimization or reconfigurations are already undertaken for reliability scenarios. So if, if you have a generator that goes out or you have a transmission line that goes out, utilities plan for that and they'll look at reconfigurations for those situations. But with software that can evaluate those options much more quickly, it's a complicated thing to, to look at all the different impacts of changing the topology of the grid. You can now use reconfigurations for economic reasons or, you know, outage planning, all these other shorter term efforts that utilities have to do. Okay. Taking it back up a level. So we understand this are three core gets technologies. Break down the sort of key benefits, maybe starting with, you know, the cost savings piece, right? I think I read that uh, gets, uh, if properly implemented, can decrease congestions costs by up to 40%. Talk a little bit about the cost savings and after that, how it can speed integration of renewables. And I, you kind of already hit on reliability. Maybe we can come back to that. Yeah, exactly. We're looking at cost savings, cleaner energy faster, and then reliability through flexibility and awareness. So on cost savings from the market monitor reports uh, of congestion costs, and that's when you can't deliver the lowest cost electricity, so you have to use higher cost electricity, that cost the system's over $20 billion in 2022. So if we can decrease those costs by 40% by increasing line ratings, improving power flow control, and finding reconfigurations, uh, there's billions and billions of dollars on the line every year. And these gets are very low cost. So in one study we did, and this only quantified one type of benefit, but $90 million of gets technology deployments unlocked $175 million of yearly benefits. So that gets paid for themselves in six months. And after that, you're just looking at net benefits to consumers. And other studies have found payback periods of up to two years. But again, the net savings start piling up pretty quickly. All right. So it seems like gets are a no-brainer. What's the holdup? <laughs> uh, you know, why aren't we doing this everywhere? It sounds like uh, here in America, from what I read, uh, you know, the Belgians and the Brits have a lead on this. So paint a picture again. What kind of changes do we need at the policy level to ensure wide deployment of gets? And maybe in answering that, tell us a little bit more about the Watt Coalition, which Hassie is uh, proud to be a member of. 
but why aren't we doing more gets? Yeah, absolutely. It's a structural problem. It's really nobody's job to address this hugely expensive transmission congestion. And utilities are, their, their business model tends to be a return on equity. So the more that they spend building the grid, that creates their rate base, and then they're compensated based on how big that rate base is. So if they deploy grid-enhancing technologies, that's a really low-cost tool. For instance, one deployment of GETS cost a quarter million dollars versus a $50 million line rebuild, and it reduced congestion by $23 million a year. So that's just, again, a slam dunk. But if you think about the rate base, they were looking at a quarter million dollars versus $50 million. That's a big difference. One thing I, I'm curious about, Julian, your take on is if utilities have this clear economic incentive to build large transmission infrastructure, not that that's not required, in some circumstances that is required, then what are the carrots and sticks we can deploy? What advice can we give the regulators and the policymakers? What needs to change the whole paradigm? Where to begin? I, I think another element that's holding gets back is that utilities are happy to do things the way they've always done them, and regulators are used to evaluating these proposals. They know what a transmission line does, and maybe they don't know what a dynamic line rating device does. So one approach that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has taken is a requirement to use ambient adjusted ratings, and that's just a blanket requirement. That doesn't solve the incentive problem, but it does tell utilities, okay, you're going to increase transmission capacity based on ambient temperature at the very least. And that order 881 also required the RTOs to prepare to accept dynamic line ratings. So in that case, we're solving a technological issue where the RTOs might not have been able to incorporate dynamic line ratings into their economic dispatch. So that's an example of a requirement framework. And Commissioner Christie at FERC, in his concurrence on Order 2023, suggested that he's interested in a requirement for dynamic line ratings as well. So again, that doesn't resolve the incentive issue, but it does give the utility commission something to go off of. You know, if their utilities are required to use dynamic line ratings and they're not seeing those projects happening, they could ask them what's going on and why aren't my rate payers seeing, seeing this benefit? So there's a requirement framework that has been tested and used. But another direction is incentives. And we've seen those be very effective in other countries. So the UK has incentive frameworks for utilities to use uh, lower cost solutions versus baseline solutions. And then the, the utilities see compensation for that. And then in the Australian market, utilities can also uh, spend some of their expenditures on innovation and they can see some revenue based on the, the success of the lower cost solutions as well. So there's a proposal before FERC to create a shared savings incentive that if a utility deployed gets and reduced congestion costs by a certain amount, they could keep a portion of those net savings over, say, three years. So the, the utility could keep $2 million and the customer's would then have uh, $6 million of benefit for this deployment, for instance. Obviously, on the scale of that example I shared where the congestion costs were $23 million a year, you know that, that incentive could be high. The proposal caps the incentive, but the, the benefits that could be unlocked are, are significant. 
And specifically, at FERC, so that's a, a notice of proposed rulemaking at FERC right now, or is that... it's it's a step back? Actually, it was a technical conference, okay. so there is a bit of a record and you know comments from different entities on on the shared savings incentive, but it did not make it to a NOPER. And similarly, the dynamic line ratings was a notice of inquiry on dynamic line ratings that could turn into a requirement. But again, that would have to get to the next stage of a NOPER. It's possible, though, as FERC continues to evolve and they've got to fix their makeup there. But that that remains a focus of the group that you lead, as well as other policies. Tell us a little bit about Watt. Yeah, so the Watt Coalition started in 2017. And since then, the the need for transmission has just gotten more urgent. So uh, we've grown a lot. It started with the dynamic line ratings, advanced power flow control, and topology optimization companies. And then members like HASI and Renewable Energy Developers, AES is our newest member, AES Corporation, which does technology innovation. They're, they have a utility branch and a clean energy branch. Velco, the Vermont Electric Power Company. So we have this, this diverse group of members that are all interested in seeing more transmission capacity at the lowest possible cost. So we're looking at generator interconnection. How can we reduce those upfront costs that are causing you know, huge backlogs in the queue and killing projects? How can we improve deliverability of projects that are already online and they're seeing more and more curtailment as other new projects come online and demand patterns shift? Uh, so those are some of our key goals, but we've worked mostly at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, bringing these issues to light, suggesting policy directions, commenting on the work that FERC is doing, because transmission is fundamentally a, a federal jurisdictional issue. And so FERC is is the one who can fix most of these problems. Now, states can also make progress and there's federal money from the Department of Energy that states and utilities can use to deploy Gets, so we're also engaging on those programs. Yeah, let me let me ask you about that. I mean, there was another acronym. Okay, so in the bipartisan infrastructure law, I believe DOE, of course, they have the Grid Deployment Office, and there was something announced recently called the GRIP Awards, which I think benefited some Gets projects. Can you talk a little bit about those incentives through the passage of bipartisan infrastructure laws and then the GRIP awards themselves coming out of DOE and the potential for those projects that may be benefiting from the new government grants? Yeah, it's really exciting. It's a a model that was built off of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2008. So we have seen this happen before where the, the government put several billion dollars into grid modernization, and we got synchrophaser units across the grid, keeping better track of, of assets, and now they're doing it again. So the Grid Resilience and Innovation Partnerships Program, the first round of funding funded four GETS projects. Oh, actually five. Let me take that back. Uh, one at the Virginia Electric and Power Company for advanced power flow control. Duquesne Light Company is expanding their dynamic line rating deployments. EPRI and Velco are working together on advanced power flow control. And then the Algonquin Power Fund is also working on power flow control. And National Grid, I believe, is going to deploy dynamic line ratings in New York. So it's really exciting. And these grants reduce the upfront cost for ratepayers. Of course, gets pay for themselves quickly, but this way the, the ratepayers don't have to to pony up the money. And especially for Velco, for instance, you know, they have a relatively small customer base. They're a nonprofit utility. So having that federal funding really will make a difference. And how about the states? I think you alluded to it, and I think you were at the Nehru conference last week. What's the 
reaction as you talk to um, public utility commissioners and regionally at the ISOs and RTOs? What are they doing that's a positive? Yeah. I mean, there was a great meeting in July of the federal and state joint task force on electric transmission that focused on GETS. And that was 10 state commissioners from all different parts of the country, all different business models that they're regulating, vertically integrated utilities, competitive markets. And they all saw the opportunity for GETS. They had different ideas for what kinds of incentives or requirements or oversight would help GETS be deployed in their different regions. But it was all a very productive discussion. And and the states see what's on the line, right? It's it's increasing costs for customers if we don't unlock more transmission capacity and their clean energy goals are on the line as well. So the states are really motivated and it's almost, I mean, we have ideas for what states can do, but it really comes all back to FERC. So it can be frustrating, I think, for the state regulators who want to see change, but it's not necessarily in their wheelhouse to, to do anything systematic. They can ask their utilities, have you used GETS? you know, we think this proposal would benefit from GETS, please evaluate GETS, but they can't realign the incentives or create a requirement like that. Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit Hassi.com. One of the things that I'd like to just probe a bit on, we talked going back to sort of the benefits about the wide deployment of GETS to accelerate the clean energy transition, address congestion and the interconnection queue backlog. I imagine this is very hard to model, but you know, are there any studies that you point to that sort of show, you know, the scaled impact of GETS on the on the transition? I think you've talked about the or I've seen the Brattle Group's case study is is perhaps one. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah. There are a few studies. My favorite is is Unlocking the Queue, which looked at how all three GETs could be applied across the Kansas and Oklahoma grids in conjunction with other large-scale upgrades. And the, the measure of benefit there was how much more renewable energy can we plug in? And then how much money would that save ratepayers? How many jobs would that create? So we looked at across all of those values, but with that framing. And I like that study because it looked at the real interconnection queue. It looked at the projects that were waiting. It was fairly conservative. It didn't allow greater export or import in that region. It just looked at, you know, what can can Kansas and Oklahoma take on? And it found that there was twice as much capacity for new renewables if we used GETS across the footprint, which is huge. It also showed in a in a follow-up study that the large transmission lines that had already penciled out, they were already going to be built. But when they were modeled in this forward-looking 2025 scenario, uh, the utilization of those lines was higher. So GETS can actually increase the net benefits of a transmission line that's already planned and, and going to be built. So that's another good result from, from that study. So Julia, I'm going to jump into something maybe provocative, but how do you address the concern, going back to the point you just made, that gets in, let's say, transmission planning could postpone or eliminate major transmission upgrades that would eventually lead to greater congestion or reliability issues? So how do you address that concern? Yeah, I think there's been a shift away from that mindset because we 
understand. And, you know, that was an initial reaction that we got back in 2017 all the time. But now people realize the scale of the transmission infrastructure that's going to be needed. And it's clear that we cannot keep up with the level of expansion that we need just by building new lines. And even scheduling the outages to make these upgrades becomes really complicated. And and it can take years to just schedule the outage and then begin construction. So the situation is pretty dire. So to answer your question directly, there's going to be plenty of transmission to build. GETS will in some cases be a temporary solution, you know, bridging the gap until that transmission is built. Sometimes they might be a permanent solution. Uh, Sometimes they could be a temporary solution that becomes permanent when we realize actually a different transmission line would be more useful than this one that we had thought we were going to build as clean energy development actually happens (laughs) instead of just being forecast. So I really see GETS and new transmission lines as totally complementary. While we are on the topic of misconceptions, I think there's another one that's floating around, which is DLRs are basically an operational tool only, and they really don't have any role to play in you know, longer-term transmission planning. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there are different types of transmission planning and different studies that are undertaken. I'm not the expert on this, but I do think when a renewable energy project is being evaluated, they're getting their interconnection upgrades scoped out and the scenario that's being studied is a high wind day and that you're modeling, you know, I'm not sure how fast, 10 meters per second wind at the wind turbine and two feet per second wind on the transmission line right next to it. That's concerning. And the scale of the upgrades that can be required because of that mismatch in assumptions can be in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. So if we're looking at, you know, a 1% projected line overload that is based on this study where the assumptions were inconsistent, that seems like a pretty obvious time where where dynamic line rating should really be considered and we should not be rebuilding that whole line and using our skilled labor and using our, you know, resources and lines to undertake a big upgrade when something much more reasonable could fix it. I ask you to think ahead a bit. What does success look like at the end of the decade for GETS? Yeah, I I love this question. Uh, It's a little hard to answer, maybe because it becomes a little bit technology specific. But, you know, once these tools are in the engineer's toolboxes and they know how to use them and the infrastructure is in place for them to be fully integrated, I really hope that they get pulled out at every opportunity. Like whenever a line starts to see congestion and there's curtailment. I want dynamic line ratings or advanced power flow controller topology optimization to be the first thing that the engineers look at instead of curtailing that plant. So I, yeah, I want them to be the first things engineers think of when they're trying to solve these problems that could otherwise be very expensive. And, you know, on really on any line where there's a lot of congestion, utilities should be evaluating enhancing technologies to resolve that congestion because the payback period is, is going to be fast. And then I also think back to Manisha's question about modeling, you know, they should be integrated into every step of the transmission planning and operations processes. So are you using topology optimization to plan your outages? Are you using it to, you know, do economic dispatch? Are you I'm sure there are other scenarios where you'd use this software. So uh, it is sort of a top to bottom 
process where utilities can plug these tools into all these different realms and that's different teams. So I think it'll be an exciting time of transformation, but I can, I can see these becoming, yeah, the default tools to resolve a lot of these problems, especially in the short to near term. So much transmission planning happens, you know, in the 10 or 20 year timeframe, but now you can start thinking about transmission optimization in the months or, or one year timeframe. And, you know, I, I think I heard you talk about um, that maybe this isn't a misperception, but these technologies, you know, in the UK and, and Belgium, like they're, they were implemented in 2008, some of these, right? And the technologies themselves are getting better. So it's not as if, gee whiz, whiz bang, new scientific experimental tech we're talking about, right? Could you elaborate on that? Am I right? I mean, the tech itself is getting better, but what we're talking about has already sort of been in place for a decade plus. Absolutely. I think utilities in the United States were piloting dynamic line ratings in the 90s, maybe late 90s, early 2000s. So the technology has been around for 20 years. Obviously, since then, communication infrastructure has changed completely. So that's huge. You can, you know, beam your dynamic line ratings to your control center in a way that you couldn't in 2000. And we have, you know, advanced computing and other tools that have emerged since then and improved results. But yeah, the, the fundamental concepts are not new. Advanced power flow control, there's other technologies that do power flow control. It's just that these tools are modular, they're lower cost, they're based on different technology, but the utilities already, you know, consider those larger tools. So yeah, none of this is brand new. It's just the uh, the cost curves going down and the opportunities expanding and then the urgency to use these tools that's changed. That's well said. I applaud you for actually not using the AI buzzword in this whole conversation <laughs> about technology. I thought for sure and every, you know, it's cool if it uses AI, I'm sure it does. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think some of the weather forecasting and, and dynamic line ratings, yeah. All right. Let's get to the final section. This is the portion of our program we call the hot seat lightning round question. There are no wrong answers, Julia. We just ask for the first response that comes to your mind. First question. The word or phrase I most overuse is? Unlock. Unlock, definitely. We're always unlocking capacity, the cue. A lot of unlocking. <laughs> The key ingredient to my productivity is? Early bedtime. The most challenging part of my job is? We're just getting so much interest in gets right now. It's hard for me to give everyone something actionable. And that's such a good problem to have. But Indeed. I'm really trying. <laughs> the book that has influenced me the most is? Ooh, uh, Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. What's that about? It's just a cozy little buildings roman about a boy in the UK, but he's just got this really great way of showing us that life is how you interpret it and everyone's trying their best and growing. How did you go from a bachelor's degree in physics to a career in communications and policy? <laughs> well, it was a journey of like figuring out what I could be totally obsessed with, basically. And the electricity system is, is a great puzzle of people and technology and institutions and physics. So 
I guess that's the short answer. <laughs> and I guess as a proof point to that, I was also looking at your your social media, and uh, I cannot believe that you were able to write a fairy tale based on FERC Order 2023 <laughs> that you suggested – I have toddlers – would uh, if they're interested in a bedtime story about the interconnections problems and solutions. I won't ask you to recite it, and we'll put it in the show notes, but um, – Wow, that is uh, – tell us about how you were able to uh, generate a fairy tale based on Fur Quarter 2023. <laughs> you know, it started with an idea that Hannes Feifenberger from the Brattle Group put out that the transmission expansion problem was going to be solved in three pieces with new lines and reconductoring and rebuilding and grid-enhancing technologies. And – I think I was listening to a webinar where it was all sounding very hard and and frustrating to to get what we need. And I thought, you know, it's just not that hard. And really, uh, as much as we might want to blame the utilities for not bringing on gets or, you know, be frustrated at the pace, it's it's not necessarily anyone's fault. Like we can all work together on this and we have the tools to, to fix it. So it was sort of a, a very hopeful story about personifying these technologies and how they they would help three brave little generators chugging away. I love it. I love it. We'll put that in the show notes. It's good good for the holiday season for anyone that wants to read a fairy tale uh, about FERC order 2023. <laughs> um, okay, final question. Finish the sentence. To me, climate positive means... Just pushing for solutions. We have the tools. We just need to all get aligned on them. And there are forces that try to slow down the solutions. There are forces that try to speed it up. But the closer you get to working on these issues, the more possible it all seems, even as climate science gets more and more frightening. Thank you for that. And thank you for your time. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. This was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. It really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at climateposipod or email us at climatepositive at I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.